traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's still six months out from France's presidential election, but early campaigning is telling. Emmanuel Macron's rapid rise to the presidency shook up France's political order, and that's making the fate of his re-election bid extremely unpredictable. And there's no shortage of management advice on how to make meetings work more efficiently. But our columnist picks an unusual model to work from, one that's been tried and tested for more than eight centuries. First up, though. At a news conference this morning, China's Statistics Bureau released the country's latest economic figures. GDP is up 4.9% over the same quarter of last year, but only 0.2% over the last quarter. A quick burst of growth that came with the first stages of pandemic recovery is clearly now slowing down in China. But President Xi Jinping's government seems prepared to sacrifice short-term growth to build a stronger economy in the long run. The growth figure that China reported today was slightly below expectations, and those expectations were already pretty modest. Simon Cox is The Economist's China economics editor. Prior to the pandemic, China never reported a growth figure below 5%. This one was 4.9%. China's dealing with a number of problems right now. It's been helped by strong exports, but there are a variety of difficulties in the property sector, dealing with the pandemic, and also dealing with the power sector, all of which have weighed on growth. And so let's pick apart the reasons here one at a time. How much does this tell you about the way China is recovering from the pandemic? So the pandemic has given and taken, if you like. It's meant that China's exports have been quite strong because some of its manufacturing rivals have had worse outbreaks to deal with. And also because in the West, in some of its biggest markets, people have been buying a lot of stuff because they haven't been going out to enjoy services so much. On the other hand, China has this hair-trigger response to any infections. It immediately implements quite stringent, if localised, lockdowns whenever it sees an outbreak. And that definitely weighed on uh, catering, restaurants, services and travel. And you mentioned that power in some way figures in here too. How, How do you mean? So China has been dealing with unusually expensive coal. It's suffered from a coal shortage, which has been building for some time. There have been problems in all of China's main coal mining regions. Some of them are quite idiosyncratic. For example, in Inner Mongolia, there's been an anti-corruption campaign, which has implicated some of the officials who would normally be approving expansions of coal capacity. So that has limited the ability of the coal sector there to respond to high prices. There have been floods and there have also been safety inspections after a spate of industrial accidents. 
And then more broadly, going back further, there's been a shift in China's priorities and an attempt to wean itself off coal. And that has meant that officials have been reluctant to approve new coal capacity in an attempt to reduce China's carbon emissions and move to cleaner forms of fuel. And the other factor you mentioned was the property sector. How has that figured in? Yes, so China has imposed some quite stringent regulatory restraints on borrowing amongst China's property developers. And that has pushed a number of them into quite sort of dire financial straits, the most prominent being Evergrande, which is widely cited as being the world's most indebted property developer. And it missed a payment on one of its dollar bonds last month. There's also been restraints on mortgage approvals to try and limit household borrowing. There's a broad campaign to try and shift China's economy away from property and try and encourage people to see property as something to live in, not to speculate with. And all of that has finally begun to slow the sector down. So we saw in September quite a sharp slowdown in property sales uh, and also construction starts. And property is such a big part of China's economy that that's always going to hurt growth. But in a sense, a couple of these factors might be sort of short term, the the shock in, in property and coal shortages and the like, or do you see this continuing to affect Chinese growth? So I think the coal shortages, it's true, will probably be solved within a few months. In fact, people are already wondering if there might be a glut of coal because in Mongolia, for example, which I mentioned earlier, has been ordered to expand production. And obviously with prices being as high as they are, there's a tremendous incentive for everyone to get as much of the stuff out of the mines as possible. There have also been some quite dramatic liberalizations in the power sector to make it easier for coal-fired power generators to pass higher costs on to industrial consumers. With COVID, they have been very successful in stopping outbreaks getting out of hand, but that's a sort of constant vigilance you need to maintain, and we don't know how many more outbreaks they might face. Property is a longer-term worry. It's hard to see how that will be resolved anytime soon. We're all looking very closely to see how regulators and policymakers respond to the Evergrande crisis, to see whether they try and contain any spillover effects, and to see whether they ease up on some of the regulatory restraints that have made life so difficult for property developers. And so far, they've been quite tough, despite the worry and the concern that we've all been reading about. And so taken together, what do you think this means for the plans that Xi Jinping has for China's economy? So everyone's trying to puzzle through exactly what his vision is. He gave another big speech just a few days ago about the importance of common prosperity, which is this slogan he's been emphasizing. But he doesn't seem to worry as much as his predecessors have about the financial fallout from some of these new restrictions. So if he's going to impose an environmental target, he seems willing to incur higher costs in order to do that. If he's going to try and narrow inequality, he seems quite willing to countenance upsetting some financial investors who China might have been a little bit more solicitous of in the past. And the same seems true with these mining restrictions. Again, they've interrupted production. They've shown that priorities have shifted away from growth at all costs. So the determination seems quite consistent, even if the aims to which that determination is devoted are still quite vague and and nebulous in many people's minds. Simon, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hold up. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Parce que oui, ce soir, vous l'avez emporté. La France l'a emporté. It's been four years since Emmanuel Macron became the youngest person elected to the presidency of France at 39. He'd set up a brand new party, leading a centrist pro-European campaign that crimped the rise of Marine Le Pen, his main challenger on the far right. Now, Mr. Macron is readying himself for a second campaign. Elections will be held in April next year. It's likely he'll make it through to a second round of voting, after which the number of candidates is cut to two. And there's serious jockeying in the list of those hoping to stand against him. So I went down to Avignon in the south of France in Provence for the République en Marche party conference. This is the party that Emmanuel Macron set up in order to win the election. Sophie Petter is The Economist's Paris bureau chief. And it was almost like a campaign. There were all the flags that we used to see during the rallies in 2017 when he was elected, the pink and the yellow and the blue, the European Union flag, and people cheering and shouting Macron président, you know, Macron for president. And it really had the atmosphere of a sort of campaign, even though this was in theory a party conference. And the irony was that actually the one person who wasn't there was Emmanuel Macron himself. He hasn't actually announced officially that he's going to run. But what was obvious from the feeling, the atmosphere, was that this was a preparation for for that announcement at some point. And how do you think he'll fare when that does come to pass? Well, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen six months ahead of any French election. So I think one has to look at the polls with a lot of caution. Having said that, it is nonetheless very striking that every single poll does give Emmanuel Macron a a victory in, in the second round. But I think one has to be, again, cautious, partly because of history. No sitting president has been re-elected for 20 years. And so, you know, as one of member of Emmanuel Macron's party put it to me at the party conference, it's winnable, but it's not won yet. And it's going to be really tough. Tough with who else? Who are the other contenders? Well, in some ways, I think it's helpful to think of this less in terms of political parties than in terms of the personalities who are trying to run for the presidency and the nature of the French electorate. On the far right, Marine Le Pen, of course, is the most well-known figure, and she made it into the second round last time. And Marine Le Pen is currently pushing, for example, for much tighter immigration regulation and to tighten up on how you get citizenship, to make sure that foreigners are expelled if they're here illegally in France. But she is now facing a rival also on the far right, whose name is Eric Zemmour. And he is actually not a politician at all. At least this is the first 
time he's behaving like a politician. He's a TV commentator. He's the author of books. He's an extremist who has suggested some pretty extraordinary things, such as that all first names in France should be banned if they are foreign. So that would apply to someone called Mohammed, let's say. He said that Islam is not compatible with France. When he was in Lille, for example, he talked about the fact that there is this demographic explosion taking place on Africa. L'explosion démographique de l'Afrique. And that it's a terrible burden on French society and, and a sort of threat to French identity as well. I mean, these are extreme statements that even Marine Le Pen wouldn't make these days. And he has indeed got two convictions for incitement to racial hatred. I mean, he's absolutely unapologetic. He doesn't mind at all being accused of being xenophobic. He said at one point, if the French think that I'm the devil, then I'm fine with that. Si je suis le diable, And so what do you make of that fight on the far right? Will Mr. Zemmour basically unseat Ms. Le Pen? Well, I think what's really interesting is he just takes a very different tactical point of view. Marine Le Pen, in a way, has tried to distance her party from its anti-Semitic roots, from its xenophobic image. And she has tried and is trying to bring together both the sort of disillusioned voter working class voter both on the left and on the right. Eric Zamora is doing something very different. What he wants to do is to combine the far right vote with the vote on the Catholic nationalist fringe of the mainstream. This is very much a middle class, if not bourgeois population who... I think, are attracted to Zemmour because of the intellectual side to his positioning. And that's, I think, what makes him a very different sort of threat. He's a threat both to Marine Le Pen, but he's also a threat to the nationalist fringes of the mainstream political right in France. And what about more mainstream parties? How, how are they looking? Well, it's interesting that we have a vote coming up in December from the Republican Party. That's the main centre-right party. And there are three candidates who are all probably the front runners, I would say. Michel Barney is one of them. He was the Brexit negotiator for the European Union. Probably better known, I would say, in Britain than he is in France. But he's seen as the sort of elder statesman. And one of the other front runners is Xavier Bertrand, who is the head of the northern Haute-France region. And he had broken away and said he would run anywhere and it's possible that he might. But I think, you know, you're looking at a party that doesn't have a natural leader and it doesn't have a natural candidate. All this fragmentation we're seeing on the right, you know, that's not even counting the fragmentation on the left, which is equally striking. And you've got half a dozen candidates from Greens to Socialists all the way to the to the far left. So you're looking at an incredibly fragmented vote. And that's where all this volatility is really coming from. And so do you see this as signs of real change in French politics or is this just the sort of noise and jockeying far out from an election? Well, you always get that sort of jockeying at this point because it's not until the beginning of an election year, which will be in January, that you test really which candidates are in there for the duration. And there will be shifts and some will stand down and that, that always happens. But I think what's really interesting about France is that ever since Emmanuel Macron was elected and showed that you could do it outside an established political party, it has just thrown open the political landscape. After the party conference, I was in Avignon town itself and asking people what they felt about the French election. And one local told me in particular that he felt there would be a before and an after Macron, that the old parties of the left and the right just don't exist in the same way anymore. 
people feel they don't identify with them and they, they actually feel quite lost. And I think that's what makes it so uncertain and so volatile in France at the moment. Voters are confused. The political parties are struggling to sort of impose their candidates. In a way, it's Macron himself who has upended the system and created what is an extremely unpredictable and unstable situation in France. Sophie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For the office workers of the world, the meeting feels like a necessary evil. The average American worker attends three of them every day. All told, it's a huge fraction of the time spent at work, and everyone knows there are some utterly wasted minutes in there. Andrew Palmer, the new author of our Bartleby column on work and management, has been looking at one way to ensure all that time is put to better use. So there are lots of ideas about how to improve meetings, but one is really worth looking at. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, how do you find the defendant? Guilty or not guilty? And that's the jury system. It's been around for more than 850 years. It produces reliably good results, and it's regarded with something approaching reverence. Okay, so let's take these things in fairly judicial fashion. Let's start with the evidence in favor of running meetings as if they were juries. So there are a few characteristics for the jury system and jury deliberations that are worth thinking about. One is that it's very clear why people are there. That's not always true in corporate meetings. Another is that the size seems to be about right. More people than 12 adds voices, but not necessarily value. And fewer people reduces diversity of view. The membership is kind of designed to reduce groupthink. So outsiders are in the pool. People don't know each other. It's not a a bunch of insiders, as often happens uh, within companies. And finally, the system is set up to deliberately introduce opposing arguments. So psychological safety, the idea that you can speak up, dissent, and put a different kind of view is built into the system. And that's something that that companies can learn from too. And so how to put these things into practice then? What what can companies actually be doing in the the way of making it more jury-like? Well, one thing is to think about purpose. Is the meeting genuinely needed or is it a waste of everyone's time to gather them? Another would be to think about size. So at Amazon, Jeff Bezos used to have a two pizza rule, which defined how many people should be in a room to work together productively. You know, a one jury rule would be an analogue. And then in terms of that psychological safety point and getting people comfortable with expressing different views Meetings can be structured with that in mind. You could appoint someone as a devil's advocate, for example. Blackstone, a big private equity firm, has its Monday morning meetings to probe potential investments. And what they do is very deliberately structure the meeting to look at the weaknesses of particular deals as well as its arguments in favour. Okay, now I will call up the defence here, which asserts that perhaps this isn't all entirely practical. Yes, it's true that there are some things about the jury system that don't translate particularly well. Uh, unanimity is not a way to run a company. It's not possible to gather together strangers or desirable to make big corporate decisions. And some meetings are not designed to reach verdicts on things. Sometimes it's about building culture and teams or transmitting information. And of course, people can be incredibly stupid. There was a famous case in the UK in the 90s where a murder conviction was quashed 
after it emerged that some of the jurors had used a Ouija board to ask the deceased who had been responsible for their demise. So jurors are people, people can be idiots. That's always true. So this is not a recommendation to run every firm as though it was the criminal justice system. It's more to think about some of the principles that make the jury system interesting and that have served it well over this very long period of time. Okay, final arguments here. Can we expect this kind of thing to spread interdepartmental jury service to start soon? I'm not very confident on that score, Jason. You know, articles have been written for decades about how to run meetings better. And this idea, I, I fear, is not going to spread. However, people may think a little, a little harder about what makes a good meeting, and perhaps the jury will come to mind. The defense rests, and you can too. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.